Mark chapter 13 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. The first 13 verses of that chapter. Mark 13. And I'd like you to look at an image that I have for you up here and tell me what building or buildings these are under construction. I think you'll recognize them. What buildings are those? The Twin Towers in Manhattan. That's right. World Trade Center, Towers 1 and 2. They finished construction and they opened in... 1973, just a little bit before I was born. So most of you who've been around a little while recognize that building. And, and this next one is more of what we're used to seeing. This is what it would have looked like from the harbor there uh, in the years that I saw it when I was in high school. And then, unfortunately, most of us also recognize what it looked like after September 11th of 2001. Now, how many of you who maybe remember if you're old enough, when those buildings went up, or certainly you, maybe you visited them if you went to New York City, everybody recognized them. How many of you would ever have imagined that those buildings would come toppling down? It's unthinkable, isn't it? It's horrific what happened there. But I want to put that thought into our minds as we approach this passage today. Because what we see where we pick up, the chapter breaks weren't there, but where we pick up in Mark's narrative the disciples are leaving the temple complex with Jesus and they, they marvel at the buildings and how does he respond to them? That not one stone is going to be left on another. And the way that thought would have hit their brains would be if I had come to you in 1999 and said, both those towers are going to topple in a few hours. You would have said, no way. There's no way. It took however many years to build these things. that They would never come down. That's how they felt about their temple. More about that in a moment, but hopefully you've had a chance to get to our passage, and I'm going to read it for us. So would you stand, please? I'm going to read. This is Mark 13, 1 through 13. Then as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand. Or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, 
and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Can we pray together, please? Our Lord and God, there is much in our world for us to worry about. There is much for us to be fearful about. And yet you, God, are in control of all of it. The nations may rage, but you are still on your throne. This is your book, and you have written the story, and you know how history will end. And you have shared it with us to know that you, Lord, are victorious. You will reign. You have done as it pleases you. So as we begin this section, this amazing sermon, this discourse that you gave to your disciples, would you please give us understanding? Would you help me to be clear? Would you empower me with your spirit to teach your word accurately and clearly this morning and that you would show us how you want us to respond to this today? May it not be simply academic, but may this be a spiritual exercise hearing from you and responding to what you show us. Holy Spirit, would you very specifically encourage, convict, prompt how we need it most today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This chapter, chapter 13 in Mark, begins what is the longest sermon recorded in the Gospel of Mark. You remember, hopefully, that we've seen lots of miracles. We've seen parables here and there. But Mark has been very focused on action, 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 action. And here he shares the longest section of teaching that we have in his gospel. This sermon by Jesus is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Why? Because it was preached on the Mount of Olives. We commonly think uh, we, we commonly think of the Sermon on the Mount, that's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and, and that's what that's called because it says that he went up onto a mountain, he preached. This is also a Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? This is one that he preached on the Mount of Olives. And here, he predicted the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple specifically. And that prompted his disciples to ask him, well, when is this going to take place? What are the signs? How will we know that this is coming? Now, as we approach this chapter, I want to let you know that there are other people who love God, study his word, believe this book, that believe either one of two things about this chapter. Either everything Jesus is telling us has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. That's one train of thought. There are others who say everything in this chapter is yet to come. It's all future. And then there are those, like me, who believe it's both. It's not just one or the other. There are parts of this that seem to have a near and partial fulfillment, and there are others that haven't happened yet and will happen in the future. The key word, I believe, of this entire section is tribulation. Tribulation. And we aren't going to see that word appear today in the verses that we read, but it appears twice later in the chapter. So first, let's talk about what that means. When I say tribulation, what does that mean? Well, it means hardship, just basic tribulation. John 16, 33, Jesus told us, in this world you will have tribulation. 
But take heart, take comfort. Why? Because I have overcome the world. That's what he promised his disciples. So that's just basic tribulation. That's life in a fallen world. And then we sometimes talk about the tribulation. Put that definite article in front of it. The tribulation, seven-year period of time prior to the second coming of Jesus. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a time of tribulation different from any other on earth. And that brings us to that last one in that list, the great tribulation. That's the last half, the three and a half year portion leading up to the second coming of Christ. That will be the worst tribulation the world has ever known. And you can read about that on your own in Matthew 24, the parallel, Matthew 24, 21, Revelation 7, 14. So here's a very simple diagram for you. And I know this is review for many of you, but it may not, not be for some. So I want to make sure that we're kind of on the same page. This is what I personally believe about the end times. That does not mean that you have to agree with all of this in the same order that I have it. We can, we can talk. There are things we can disagree on. But as I study the scriptures, those of you who were here for our study in Revelation, this is what I personally believe. That prior to the seven-year tribulation that we're out of here, Thank you for the three of you who are excited about that. Come on. The Lord is going, I guess the rest of you don't believe in the rapture. Okay, that, that's fine. But those of us who believe in the rapture are excited about the prospect of it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Take us up. Let's go. Rapture of the church prior to delivering us out of wrath. That's what I personally believe. Again, good people who love God and his word have different ideas. Seven-year tribulation. That's what we were just talking about. The tribulation, seven-year period. First half there's a peace treaty in effect. In some ways, things seem really good for a time. And then we get to the halfway point. I'll talk about that more in a second. And that second half, it's called the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's awful. And then Jesus comes back. Touches down on, thank you. Touches down on the Mount of Olives. He is there in the way the disciples thought he was coming that first time. He is there to take over. He's going to rule and reign, I believe, for a literal thousand-year period. Okay? That's where I'm coming from. I normally give you that information to know what perspective I'm coming from when we deal with end times. Now, in this chapter, if I'm telling you this is all about the tribulation, how does that lay out? Well, we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And there's some introductory material here, the first four verses, but then we get to verse 5. From verse 5 to verse 13, it's talking about the beginning of the tribulation, the first half. When we get to verses 14 through 18, where we'll pick it up the next time we're in Mark, that's the middle. That's the midpoint of the tribulation. And then the end, verses 19 to 27, and Jesus comes back. So that's the way it is laid out here. Mark's account is a little bit shorter than Matthew's, so if you're wanting to study this on your own this week or in the weeks to come, you can check it out in Matthew 24, 25. The parallel there is a little bit longer. It's also recorded in Luke. I think that's Luke 21. Here are the main ideas I want us to get from today, because we can dig into this, and we have, right? When you deal with the tribulation in Revelation, you're talking about from chapters 6 to 19, Big section. We spent weeks. We spent months. We could not get out of that tribulation is how it felt for the person who was studying it all week every week. So this is, this is more concise than that. And I think those are, obviously it's important because God gave it to us. But what are we supposed to do with this right now today? And here's what I want us to remember. Number one, God is in control. Do you believe that this morning? God is in control. And that he keeps his promises. 
We have to believe, we have to know, we have to reassure ourselves of those things when we're reading about all these bad things that are going to happen. That they are still happening according to his control. It's not spinning out of control. The wheels are not falling off. He's got this. And it's going to happen exactly the way he wants it to happen. We've already seen that in Mark in two chapters ago. Jesus came into Jerusalem, we call the triumphal entry. He's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's coming in exactly the way he wants to, exactly on the date when he needed to, to fulfill prophecy because he is the king and he is presenting himself to his people. He's in control of this. Later in the week, we're going to read he is tried illegally and crucified unjustly. And he's still in control. So when we see these things, when we read of these things that we're going to study in this chapter, please remember that he is in control. And what's more, he keeps his promises. That's where this dual fulfillment comes in as far as I'm concerned. If he can tell us something that's going to happen, he didn't say exactly AD 70, but that's when it happened. It was some 40 years from when he was saying it. If he can predict that and it comes to pass just as he predicted in a way that nobody else would have expected, then when he tells us these things that some of them are hard to read, some of them are hard to understand, some of them maybe even hard to believe, it's still going to happen because he keeps his promises. Now the purpose in giving us this information is not for us to try to understand every little tiny detail. If, that, if, if that's up your alley, then, then study it out and come to a firm conviction based on the Bible what you believe about every little tiny detail. But that's not my point in trying to preach through this. Because the commands I'm going to show you in a minute, the commands that he gives us are about being prepared. Be ready, be ready, be ready. Because if I'm right about the rapture, then we're going to be looking from the skies down anyway. Jesus didn't give us this information so that we could figure out all the minutiae or certainly not set dates of when this is going to happen. He gave it to us so that we'd be ready. We would have a mindset of eternity that he could come back at any time. I better be ready. I better be telling others. That's what I want us to do with this information. So here are the commands. A great way to study scripture is to look for the imperatives, look for the commands. Here are five that I found. There may be others that I missed, but these are the five that I found in our section for today. Number one, don't be deceived. Watch out, be careful not to be deceived because there will be deceivers out there. Number two, don't be afraid. So don't be deceived, that's verse five. Don't be afraid, verse seven. Be on guard, be watchful, that's verse nine. Similar to our scripture reading a few minutes ago, don't worry, that's in verse 11. And finally, speak what is given to you, also in verse 11. So be on the lookout for those commands as we study this together. We're going to go back to verse 1, and we'll work our way through. In verse 1, it says, Then as he, that's Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? Look around, isn't this great? He's going out of the temple. Others have pointed out, the glory is leaving the temple. Those of you who've read your Old Testament, you know what we're talking about. The glory of God has left the temple. Why? Because Jesus is God. And this is the last time he is going to leave that temple. More about that in a minute. His disciple, and we don't know which one because he's not named here, says, 
Lord, look at this. Teacher, this is great. Is this not impressive? And it was impressive. It truly was. This temple was originally rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra. We can read more about that in Ezra 6. But it was expanded, it was renovated, it was redone, and was made very grand by Herod the Great. That process began in 20 BC. It was incomplete. The reason I showed you that image of the World Trade Center towers under construction is that there may have been scaffolding, that what Herod intended to do to this temple was still a work in progress during the time of Jesus. It didn't get finished until AD 64, six years before it would be destroyed. So this temple, although it was being expanded and embellished at this point in time, this was their temple for almost a thousand years. It was a big deal to them. It had become really too big a deal to them. We read that they had been swearing by the temple or the gold that's in the temple. There are other references in the Gospels to those. Some people have placed the value on this ornate temple, everything that Herod the Great had ordered done to it, at $1 trillion. The gold, the silver, the bronze, to a lesser extent, the cedar and the stone, the components that went into this thing were unbelievable. And it may seem odd to us, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? We can imagine the buildings. Maybe you've been to Washington, D.C., and you've seen those large Smithsonian museums on the mall or, or the monuments and the memorials. Amazing structures. So you would expect that, and they say, and how about those stones? Aren't those stones cool? What, what are they talking about? The historian Josephus says that some of those stones for the retaining walls were 35 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. So to try to help us, we know what size a full-size school bus is, right? You have that in your mind? Park them side by side. Now you have what some of those largest stones look like. Only it was stone. It's not a hollow school bus. Uh, a number I kept coming across this week was 100 tons and more. There are modern cranes, very few modern cranes that could move the stone we're talking about. So in the same way the pyramids and other ancient sites are a marvel, just putting together this temple is beyond some of what we can figure out. How did they do that? So the disciple, and probably all the disciples, are amazed by this structure. Jesus, have you noticed how great it is, how beautiful it is? And I'm sure he had, and it was. But there was a greater than the temple who was present. It was Jesus, and he was leaving that temple. He had already let them know what he thought of the temple earlier in the week, right? He said, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. We've covered that. Verse 2, and Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. What's he talking about? About 40 years later, A.D. 70, Jerusalem will be under siege for a number of years. And at the end of that time, Rome would conquer Jerusalem and destroy the temple. This is from history, but apparently the general, Titus, the son of Vespasian, the emperor, ordered that they not touch the temple. And a soldier threw a burning torch in there anyway, set it on fire, and it went up in flames very quickly. And the story goes that 
it burned so hot that the gold that was layered on everything melted down to the floors and went in between the stones. So history says that part of the reason the stones themselves were dismantled was to get to the gold that had flowed down in between and resolidified. Whatever the case, it is sure from history that the Romans leveled it. And they took these enormous stones and some of them threw them down the hill down into the valley below. And what did Jesus predict? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The only ones that were left undisturbed were those huge foundation stones that, frankly, they could not have dismantled in that way. And that, that's what's still there today. Um, some of you have been there. And, and the Wailing Wall, for example, is part of those foundation stones and, and retaining wall stones. So the fact that that, Jesus said, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The fact that that was a prophecy, a very specific one, and it was fulfilled literally, suggests to me, and I hope it does to you, that the rest of this passage is prophecy that's very specific that's going to be fulfilled literally. Now, I told you I wanted to come back to this idea, because this was new to me this week. The idea of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. If you want to read about it on your own later, Ezekiel 11 says that he saw the glory of God. You remember the wheels? We get kind of hung up on the wheels and the, the creatures look a certain way and how did, they, how did all that work? Well, what's the point? The point is that the glory of God is first in the threshold and then goes up with the wheels, leaves, departs from the temple. Where's it go? Do you have any idea where the glory of God went first when it left the temple? It went to a mountain on the east side of the city. Where have we read about a mountain on the east side of the city? Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, the one who is the glory of God, God himself come in human flesh, leaves the temple for the last time. Where does he go? He goes to the Mount of Olives. And he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3 says, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the, the inner circle of three, plus the other brother, the, the first four that are, were called, according to this gospel, asked Jesus privately, verse 4, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? They come to him privately. They're asking a question on behalf of the 12. And they have two questions. When will these things be and what will be the sign? Because they believe him. You notice that? They believe what he's saying about the temple. It's blowing their minds. They can't imagine how could this thing be torn down? How could the stones be cast away? But they believe it. So they're asking him, when? When is this going to happen? In their minds, as I read this, we, we use a little bit of imagination. What were they thinking? It seems like they're expecting all of it to be at once. Because still, at this point, they don't understand Jesus is coming the first time and he is going to rescue. He's going to die. He's going to save. He is the servant we read about from chapter 10. So they are still expectant that this is a political Messiah. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to free us. He's going to reign. They're ready for that. Remember, they've, some of them are even asking for the positions on the right and the left. They're ready. So they think if this is going to be a catastrophe, the temple is going to be torn down. How do we know? How soon is this happening? When's it happening, Lord? That's what they're asking. And how will we know? What are the signs? What kind of miraculous occurrence can we expect? 
So I believe, and the way I'm presenting this today, is that we have a dual fulfillment, a dual prophecy going on. There are some things he's going to tell that will be soon, and you can actually read play out in the book of Acts, a near fulfillment, and then a complete fulfillment that will come at the end of the age. And before we move on, I realize that some of you may not be here when we get through the rest of the chapter. You might be helping with children's classes or whatever. So I want to answer their question from this passage. Look down to verse 26 for a minute. That's where the answer is. According to Scripture, there is one clear sign to tell us of the second coming of Christ. You know what it is? Everybody's going to see him. He's coming in the clouds. Everybody's going to see him. That's verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. There's a parallel in Revelation 1 that says, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. How do we know it's the second coming? Because every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, often in scripture, often in teaching, you'll say, I'm going to define this for you, and it's not this. And you, you say the negative part first. It's not this, instead it's this. And that's kind of what we have going on here. They're asking, what is the sign of his coming? Well, we just read it. It comes later, later than where we're going to get today. So Jesus is going to explain to them what are not the signs of his coming. I'm going to share with you, I, I was reading Warren Wiersbe's commentary this week, and I thought that his outline of this next set of verses was good. So I'm just going to share it with you. He says, these signs, the ones that aren't leading up to the second coming, are the success of false Christs, nations in conflict, natural disturbances, and religious persecutions. Those things are present today. They were present at the time of Jesus and certainly in the early church. But they are going to be more common. They are going to be more intense leading up to the coming of the Son of Man. So that, that's pretty much the outline of what we're going to go through here, starting in verse 5. And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed. That's our first imperative, right? Our first command. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will, receive, will deceive many. What's he saying? Take heed. Beware. Keep your eyes open. Be careful. Watch out. Why? Because many will receive, will deceive many. Many will be misled. How? False prophets, false teachers, false Christs will come and say, I'm Christ. I'm the Son of God. And they will deceive many, it says. We're not to the end. We're really at the beginning of the beginning of what he's talking about. But one way that you will know you're getting closer is that there will be many who deceive saying that they are the christ the spirit of antichrist that we've been talking about with the men in first john and second john verse seven but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars do not be troubled second imperative second command for such things must happen but the end is not yet you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars he's saying don't be disturbed 
Don't be alarmed. Don't be distracted when you hear about wars, when you hear the sounds of battle close by, or when you hear the rumors, the reports of war far off. Anybody heard any reports of war anywhere around the world recently? Goodness. And that's common. But it's, I tell you, it's going to get worse and it's going to get more frequent as we get closer. Why? Because he said it must happen. It is necessary. This is all part of God's plan. Whether we understand it completely, whether we like it, this is his plan. And this is how it's going to happen. This is leading up to the final judgment. Now, the fact that there are people claiming to be Christ, the fact that there are a bunch of wars doesn't mean that we're at the end of the age yet because it says the end is not yet. The disciples probably thought that You mean the temple's going to be torn down and the stones are going to be loosened and thrown into the valley? That must mean the end of the world. And he's saying, the end is not yet. It's not time yet. Verse verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow. So first he says the end is not yet, and then he says these are the beginnings of sorrows. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, talking about nation states, talking about ethnic groups, warring against each other. Earthquakes. Anyone heard of any earthquakes recently? They will become more and more common. Research it yourself. See whether it seems that earthquakes are becoming more common over the decades and and the centuries. Famines. Often after war you have famine. Troubles. In the parallel passage, the word that Matthew uses is pestilences. We would call those plagues. We would call those pandemics. That's what's going to happen. So earthquakes, famines, troubles. And that's just the beginnings of sorrow. What does that mean? That's talking about birth pangs. Those of you who are ladies in the room who have given birth. There's a process to that, right? And it starts off, and I, it, it's not pleasant to begin with, right? The, the very first birth pangs. Woo, wow. Okay. But guess what? You're not finished. Oh, I had a contraction. I'm done. No, that's not how it works, is it? I'm going to try not to say something stupid here, but <laughs> it gets closer together and it gets more intense. Is that a good statement? All right. I'm, I'm getting some nods. That's what this is going to be like. These famines, these earthquakes, these pestilences are going to be closer together, more frequent, and more intense. That's what he's saying. This is the beginning of sorrows. Now this first section, he was talking to his disciples, his people, who were the Jewish people, who were Israelites, by the way. I think that plays into the tribulation as well. But he's saying, take heed that you not be deceived. So he's saying, take heed to yourself, more of an internal view. Now he's going to say, watch out for yourselves because of what's going to happen to you. So watch out around you for false teachers. Watch out for yourself. Verse nine, another imperative. Watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you up to councils and will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. 
And you can see, even in this section, there is a, a progression starting off with councils, local, and it increases up to authorities, kings, but then it gets very personal, it gets very close to home. Brother, sister, mother, father, child. Just as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple are a type of the judgment yet to come, persecution in the early church is a type of the persecution that will take place during the tribulation. They will deliver you up. They will hand you over. The very disciples he was talking to right then would experience some of that fury, some of that persecution. The word councils is literally Sanhedrins. We know that there was one great Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem, 71 members. But the smaller groups in a synagogue, they would take care of the local stuff, charges of heresy, charges of various law-breaking. The synagogues, those were their meeting places, and they also functioned as courtrooms. And they would, if it was necessary, according to their decision, they would administer floggings. They would be beaten there in the synagogue. Can you imagine having, okay, we're going to pass judgment on you here at the church building today, and then we're going to have a beating. No, we don't do that, thankfully. But that, that's what it was like back then in their local assemblies. They would sometimes have people beaten as a form of punishment. And from there, we see the progression to rulers and kings. As you read the book of Acts, locally in the synagogues, Saul is going around and he's having people beaten, persecuted, because they're followers of the way, the followers of Christ. But from there, God met Saul, changed his life, revealed himself to him, and what do we read about? We, we read about, early on, Peter and the, John and the other disciples who are standing before the Sanhedrin. From there, by the time we get to the end of the, end of the book, we have Paul appealing to the emperor, and he, he stands before Felix and Festus and other governors, officials. That's what it's going to be like at the end of the age as well. And just as it happened in the book of Acts, so let me put it this way, persecution will result in proclamation. That persecution will actually fan and spread the word of God. And that's what we read in verse 10. And the gospel must, there's another must, first be preached to all the nations. There's going to be a worldwide proclamation of the gospel. And as we read Revelation, we see it, don't we? When we studied that book, we read about the 144,000 who bear witness of Christ. And we read about those two witnesses. And then we get to the end, and there is an angel who's going to preach the everlasting gospel through the sky. So the gospel will be preached throughout all the world during the tribulation, during the great tribulation there at the end. Now, there are some who've been confused by this. Throughout the last century or two, people have decided, well, this means that we have to preach the gospel so that Jesus can come back. Well, yes and no. We are supposed to preach the gospel. Isn't that what he told us to do? Go, while you're going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe the things that I have commanded you. 
That's what we're all supposed to be doing. But my obedience to that isn't going to make Jesus come back. He's on his timetable. And I believe what that's describing isn't we're going to have such a great missions movement and finally get to that last unreached people and woo, here we go. No, I believe what this is saying, as if we compare it to Revelation, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, I think we're seeing our job is the Great Commission now until he comes back. But he's going to take care of taking the gospel to all the nations in that way with the 144,000 and the two and the angel and so on. Verse 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. When they arrest you and deliver you up, they're going to hand you over. And it says, do not worry beforehand. So here's another command for us, an imperative. We can remain calm. What else? Don't premeditate what you will speak. Now, I could take that and misapply it and say, I'm going to gain several hours of my week back because I'm just not going to study anymore because the Holy Spirit's going to give me in that hour what I'm supposed to say. Does that sound like a good plan? Do you think that's what that's saying? Me either. It's saying that when you are put on trial for your faith, trust God. Trust the Holy Spirit to give you the right word in the right moment. Now, do we depend on him day in and day out to give us words? Yes. When you're sharing your faith with someone, the Holy Spirit will enable you, will help you to do that. When you have to have a difficult conversation with, with your child or even with your parent, he will help you with that. Coworker. The Holy Spirit helps us to speak, but particularly about Jesus. And the context of this is when you are being imprisoned. Do you see that? When they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak to that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He will give you the words. He will speak through you. That doesn't mean that you're going to be set free. We read some miracles about that at the beginning of Acts 2, don't we? That, that they're released supernaturally and they're in the, they're in the uh, temple praying and teaching and speaking and they go to look for him and where are they? I don't know. You were supposed to watch him. So there are times that he will deliver supernaturally, but that's not promised here. What is promised is that the Holy Spirit will help. The Holy Spirit will guide. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. Now we get to these family relationships, these ones that hit closer to home. Verse 12, now brother will betray brother to death and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for all my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's a promise from the Lord, isn't it? Anybody have any of those 365 promise books? I don't think that one's in there. I've never seen a bumper sticker or a refrigerator magnet that said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the point of it is that it's for my name's sake. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Everyone's going to hate you 
but it's going to be for my sake. If you are enduring persecution for my sake, I will give you the grace. You will endure. Do you say that there? The one who remains loyal, the one who continues to believe. And don't misunderstand. When it says shall be saved, it's not saying that you will endure and save yourself. You aren't saved because you endure. You endure because you are saved. That's what this is saying. Danny Aiken put it this way. Perseverance is the proof that our profession is real. It's a fruit. It's not the cause of our salvation. And for the second time today, we read these words about the end. And for today, that is the end. We're stopping here in verse 13. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Why did Jesus tell his disciples this? Why did he tell us this? Well, part of it is that they were going to endure persecution. They were going to endure hardship, tribulation, for the sake of Jesus and his name. We have it very easy right now in our culture, in our country. You may get called names. You may even get shouted at or cursed at. But generally, right now in this part of the world, there is not persecution. But we have brothers and sisters all over this world that are being persecuted today, probably right now. And it may be coming. And if so, these verses take on a brand new application. But for us today, in this place, on this date, what should we be reminding ourselves of? What should we be taking from this? To be spiritually alert, to be prepared, to be ready. And we're going to see that command. I'm I'm tracking these commands. I think we had five of them so far. There are over a dozen of them in this chapter. And we need to be ready. And we need to remind ourselves that God is in control and that he keeps his promises. Because you probably aren't enduring persecution this week. But there may be a trial that you're facing. We live in a fallen world, that first definition of tribulation. Life in a fallen world. We're probably all dealing with that this week. Are you going to trust God that he's in control? Are you going to believe that he keeps his promises? I hope not, but something catastrophic could happen in our world this week. Are you going to trust that God is in control and that he keeps his promises? That's what we need to do. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Early in our service, in the scripture reading, Philip talked about worry. And he tells us over and over in that passage, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. And in a sense, I'm saying the flip side of that, do trust, do trust, do trust. We can cast our cares on him. He cares for us. But some of you may need to do that this morning. Something's weighing heavily on your mind, on your heart, a trial, a relationship, a financial need, a health need, whatever it is. God is in control. He keeps his promises. We know how the story ends, don't we? 
So it may be that you've already done this several times this morning, but you may need to cast your cares on him again right now, knowing that he cares for you. There may be somebody that God has laid on your heart. You need to share the gospel with that person today or this week because you realize that part of being ready, part of being prepared for his coming, we need to tell others. We have a commission to fulfill. And it may be that there's somebody here that there's sin in your life and you need to get ready yourself. You need to confess that sin and forsake it and know that he will cleanse and renew you. So whatever he lays on your heart, I don't know what that is, but I pray you'll do it in the quietness of this moment this morning. Our Father, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would stir up remembrance this week of this passage, of what you've said, of what you've promised, of what you will do. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that you are in control. We praise you that you keep your promises. We can depend on you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we bless your name. Father, for anyone who is making some sort of decision this morning based on what you have led him or her to do, I ask for grace, for strength in follow-through that you would bring all of us to the conformity of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.